Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and as always, is joining me is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I am good. It's episode 23, and we just hit the six-month anniversary of our first episode this week, and that's just crazy to me. I know. Uh, time has flown by, but how have you been? Uh, good. I know. It's crazy. Six months. Um, but just been staying busy with work and the podcast, as you know. Uh, we have some Patreon uh, patrons to thank. A huge thank you to Gemma and Jane for your Patreon support. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter or want to check out our rewards, head over to patreon.com slash misconduct. We have some five-star reviews we want to thank as well. And um, full disclosure, Apple Podcast isn't the best. And I was just made aware, <laughs> which might be actually my fault. Uh, that the reviews that show up when I look us up on iTunes in the iTunes store only shows reviews for our country. Uh, so I clicked around in other countries and found a bunch of reviews that I missed. So we apologize for that. And we didn't mean to ignore you. So I wanted to mention you now. <laughs> so thank you to Dodge173 from the UK, uh, Lorena74, Mauled by Meerkats, and Miss MC78 from Australia. And finally, random FF Dent. Nicole and Christy Lee, hello from our neighbors to the north, Canada. Uh, side note, we're very jealous of your prime minister. <laughs> and we're very down to trade with you guys, but we don't really have a lot to offer. <laughs> so we are currently at 130,000 30, downloads, and our May contest is now over. So thank you to everyone who liked and shared our pages, our posts, our tweets, etc. You guys are really amazing. So let's announce the winners. Uh, the sticker winners are Aaron Marie from Facebook, and from Twitter, we're just going to use your handles, Wolves Mom, Lori Wimberly, uh, Maria Barber, Meredith Gypsy Glam, uh, Digsby's Pedigree, ASAP Bookworm, and C. Easter Earl. And those, you guys all won stickers, and our mug winners, you're going to get a mug and a sticker from us, is Jill and Mary Virginia. Uh, we'll be contacting you guys directly on Twitter or Facebook, so watch out for a private message from us. And thank you to all our supporters for supporting the show. Uh, we wish we could send stuff to all our listeners, and maybe one day we can. But with all that out of the way, let's get to today's case. Sheila Fox was six years old when she disappeared on her way home from school in 1944 in Bolton, Lancashire, England. She was seen leaving the school but never made it home. Because of her young age, a search immediately began – and conflicting eyewitness accounts were given to investigators, but Sheila was never seen or heard from again. The case remained cold for 57 years, but then in 2001, the investigation became active again because law enforcement received a new tip. This was the first credible tip they had received in over half a century. 
Unfortunately, the tip went nowhere, but questions arose about other incidents in the area from the time. Was Sheila an isolated incident, or was there a serial offender responsible for multiple attacks in the area? Or worse, were there multiple offenders operating in the area? Friday, August 18, 1944, was a normal day for Sheila Fox. The young girl lived with her family in Bolton, an area with a population of about 160,000. Bolton began as the epicenter of a textile manufacturing, but has since been replaced with IT services-based businesses. In August 1944, World War II was underway. However, the ties had turned in the Allies' favor. Kids in England were now attending school on a regular basis again, and the last push to end the war in Europe was underway. Things in England were beginning to return to normal after several years of wartime. Sheila Fox was born in 1938 in England during the height of World War II. On Friday, August 18, 1944, then six-year-old Sheila was leaving for school and looking forward to the weekend. Around 4 p.m. that afternoon, she was walking home from St. James Primary School with her friends. Sheila, the youngest of five children, was expected home but never made it to her family's home on McDonald Avenue. Within a couple of hours of her disappearance, a widespread search was underway. Her parents, George and Miriam, friends and family, immediately began looking for her, and since they were still living in a city under wartime circumstances, many of the volunteers were air raid wardens and other military personnel. Volunteers scoured the neighborhood through the night. Air raid shelters, outbuildings, farms, and fields were all searched as well. As the searchers made their way through the neighborhood in a grid, fears mounted because there was simply no trace of the girl. There was no jacket or lunchbox left behind. She just disappeared. The search continued to the next day and went on through the weekend. The initial search was widespread and thorough. Even though the search basically began immediately, there was no sign of the girl, and even though she had been walking home with her friends, there didn't seem to be any concrete accounting of the events leading up to her disappearance. Some of her schoolmates said they saw Sheila, who had been wearing a green mat coat, riding on the handlebars of the bicycle of a man. Others said they saw her walking with a man down Newbrook Road, heading away from her house. The one consistency was that Sheila was seen walking with a man, and that none of the witnesses seemed to know who this man was. One of her schoolmates said they called out to her to ask her where she was going, and Sheila supposedly answered, with this man. As the news of the disappearance spread, witnesses began to come forward. Some of them corroborated the story about Sheila being on the handlebars of a man's bicycle, and police questioned the men who regularly rode their bikes in the area and ruled all of them out. Sheila's family doubted that she had gone off with a strange man no one recognized. Sheila was extremely shy and did not talk to people that she didn't know. Her parents said if she went off with someone, it would be somebody that she knew, but since no one seemed to recognize the man that she might have been seen with, it might not have been Sheila that the witnesses saw. However, if it was Sheila that was last seen with a man, Sheila would have to know him very well and be familiar with him to even speak with him, let alone go anywhere with him. Also, the girl seen walking with the man was wearing the same clothes that Sheila was last known to be wearing. The man seen with Sheila was described by witnesses as as well-dressed and clean-shaven. He was estimated to be between 25 and 30 years old with a slim build. His face was also described as slim with long and prominent features. No matter how she went missing, the fact remained that after 4 p.m. on August 18, 1944, Sheila Fox was never seen again. There's no sign of her clothes, personal belongings, and no reported sightings of her after she went missing. She truly seemed to vanish into thin air. 
Her case was classified as a missing person case, but without any conclusive evidence of a kidnapping or a murder, the case just remained open. So to me, it seems like we're probably dealing with an abduction. Multiple Mm -hmm. eyewitnesses saw someone matching her description, wearing the same clothes as she was leaving the area with a man. Also, the town she lived in was not like a huge urban center, Mm -hmm. but it's well populated and it was at the time. I think that it would be unlikely that she got lost in the middle of the afternoon around the time school let out. There'd be tons of people around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I agree. I think um, I think she was abducted. I think she was abducted, but it's too bad that nobody could really identify the man that she was with. Her family believed that she may have tried to go to London because many of her school friends were war refugees who had been living in her town and since returned home. London is over 200 miles away from Bolton, however, so it could be likely that the six-year-old didn't have, you know, a concept of how far away that is. Her family said that she really wanted to go see her friends again, so she may have taken somebody up on the offer to try to get to London. And I could see a kid maybe being tricked into this. Like, a six-year-old wouldn't really know how to do any sort of, like, planning for a trip. And, you know, what would she do when she got to London? She doesn't know where her friends live or anything. But if she was with an adult she trusted, he could have told her he could get her there. And she would have believed him and relied on him to get her to her friends. And furthermore, if she had been telling people she wanted to go to London to see her friends, that could have been the opportunity somebody used to prey on her. So maybe this could have been someone that she knew, like, I don't know, like a neighbor or somebody that she felt like she could trust. Maybe not like a good friend, but maybe somebody that was familiar. Familiar enough that she felt like she could talk to them, probably. Yeah. Because no trace of Sheila was ever found, her family held on to doubt that she had been murdered or attacked. They figured that if she were killed, a body would turn up eventually. So her parents left the front door of their home unlocked for years after Sheila's disappearance, hoping that one day she would come back. A neighbor said that those hopes eventually turned to speculation that she had been murdered in later years. Unfortunately, both George and Miriam would die without ever finding out what happened to their daughter. After the search for Sheila was called off, the case went cold. There was no sign of her and no new leads surfaced. Sheila was last seen wearing a blue flower pattern dress, a green Macintosh coat, brown stockings and brown shoes, and had pink ribbons in her hair. The case lay dormant from 1944 to 2001. While the case remained open, no movement or progress took place. In 2001, it was announced to the press that the police were expanding the investigation based on new information. At this point, Sheila had been missing for 57 years. Sheila's older sister, Renee, who at at this time was 69 years old, gave a statement to the press saying, I've hardly been able to sleep properly after I found out about it. I hope to God she is there so I will at least know where she is then. I would be so glad if they do find her because it was so sudden. It left us all feeling so empty. It was a terrible time. We never even found her shoes or a ribbon. It was just like as if the earth had swallowed her up. It turned out that the new information was a statement provided by a man who was in his 70s. He said that the night Sheila went missing, he was living nearby. He was about 13 at the time. He knew about the search for the girl, and he said that the night she disappeared, he saw his next-door neighbor, a man who was about 20, digging a hole in his backyard at midnight. The man said something about the scene bothered him at the time, and he felt like it wasn't right. He wasn't sure what to do. He said he didn't want—he didn't say anything for so long because he was afraid 
what he remembered was not significant and he didn't want to send the police on a wild goose chase or get somebody investigated who shouldn't have necessarily been looked at. Yeah, makes sense. And then, so what do you think about the man not saying anything? Because I can picture the situation he's in. You know, he thinks he sees something. And sometimes, you know, when you see a situation, for some reason, you just know it isn't right. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no particular reason that you... Just something about, like, that feeling. Yeah. One time I was at a gas station with my dad, and we saw these three kids walk in, like, into the store part, and just something didn't sit right with me. And they weren't really doing anything in particular, but something fell off, and... I turned to my dad and I was like, dad, I think they're going to rob this store. And then like two seconds later, at the same time, they went from randomly browsing to like a springing into action, sort of like a coordinated effort. <laughs> like one of them grabbed a bunch of beer and then one of the other kids like blocked the clerk from getting out from behind the counter. Organized. And they even had a getaway driver. But I'll just never forget thinking like the couple of seconds up to that point, like looking at them like something is not right about this. Mm-hmm. Um, So I'm guessing this person had that same feeling, which is why he still remembered this incident 60 years later. And if he was over 70 years old, maybe he figured if it bothered him after all these years, it was worth mentioning to the authorities, sort of like better to look around and find nothing than to never have mentioned anything. Yeah, I mean, it is odd, but, you know, he was 13, so I don't know. Maybe he just, when you're 13, you don't really know how to reconcile that. And, you know, I would guess that as you get older, you figure maybe as... I, maybe I was remembering this wrong or whatever. Um, it's really hard to know. It could have just been one of those things that now he's like, you know, now that you mention it, I did notice this, you know, when I was 13. Totally. Yeah. Law enforcement was slow to release any information and were cautious in getting people's hopes up. They they were quick to caution against hoping to close the case and wait for the investigation to run its course before speculating on anything. Law enforcement did encourage other people who lived in the area at the time to report anything they remembered, no matter how small it seemed. Detectives set out to excavate the garden where the man was seen digging all those years ago. The backyard was not only near Sheila's home, it was about 100 yards away from the house that she lived at. The excavation lasted a few days, but did not turn up any evidence of value. The son of the person of interest, the man who was seen digging, said that as far as he was aware, he had no knowledge of a police investigation and had not been contacted regarding a search. As of today, the investigation remains open as a missing persons case. There have been no additional leads that have been made public by law enforcement. As the release of this episode, Sheila Fox had been, has been missing for 72 years, 9 months, and 21 days. The man who was seen digging in the middle of the night in his backyard was a man named Richard Ryan, In 1944, he was 20 years old and lived at the address with his mother, Barbara, and his younger brother, Tom. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan worked as a miner and lived in the house until 1948. After that, he married and had a son. He lived most of his life in the Bolton area and retired in the late 1980s and then died in 1989 from a brain tumor after collapsing in a parking garage. His son said he had no idea that his father was implicated in a crime and that he didn't mention it when he was alive. The Ryan family moved out of the property decades before the search. The property changed hands multiple times and the woman who lived there at the time of the search had owned the property for nine years. There is a detail about Ryan's life that moves him straight up to the, the suspect list. Uh, in 1950, two years after he moved off the property, he was convicted of child rape. In 1965, he was charged again, this time with indecently assaulting a child. So I don't know. Like, Do you think he has something to do with it? I mean, his criminal history says maybe. Yeah. But I don't know if there's any evidence that ties him directly to Sheila. I don't know. I mean, there's really nothing conclusive anyways. I guess... They could try and ask people who saw Sheila the day that she went missing if the man she saw was Richard Ryan and show them like a 1944 era picture of him. But anyone who was an adult at the time is likely impossible to find her dead. And anyone who was her classmate at the time was six. So the likelihood they would remember what this guy looks like 72 years later is unlikely. And again, that's even if they're still alive. Yeah, I mean, he could have had something to do with it for sure, his history and location, like you said. But I wonder if his son, just kind of random, but I wonder if his son knew about his rape charges. Um, And I love that this guy was convicted of child rape, let out only to do it again. Uh, Yeah, oh, so this case was, since it's old, was harder to research a little bit. So the information on Richard Ryan is very limited, at least from what I could find. So it didn't really say if the son... So I don't know, like, the extent of the son's relationship with his father. Was he raised by him or yeah, lived all. with him at all? I don't know. Um, I just was unable to find out. Yeah, no, it was very little information. Hardly find a... Can't even find a picture of Richard Ryan. No. Um, so after all that, well, less than a year, really, after Sheila disappeared... In 1945, six-year-old Patricia McEwen was attacked at knife point while walking on St. James Street in Bolton. She survived, and the attacker was never identified. Later, in March 1948, six-year-old Brenda Hume was walking from St. James Primary School, the same one Sheila attended. A man accosted her and slashed her multiple times in her upper body and her arms, Brenda was able to get free and raise the alarm. Again, the attacker escaped after being chased through a field and was never identified. 
Since both girls survived, they were able to give descriptions of their attacker. In Brenda's case, the attacker was pursued by another passerby, so multiple descriptions were given. Both girls were attacked by a white man in his 20s or 30s who was tall and thin with a long face. If that sounds familiar, it fits the general description of the man that was last seen with Sheila. And I just think it's interesting that the general description of the man who was last seen with Sheila matches the description of the person Mm -hmm. who attacked Patricia and Brenda. Part of me wants to say that this description could potentially apply to a lot of men in England. I mean, like a tall white guy. Yeah. is not uncommon in England. But on the other hand, it could be too much to be purely coincidence. And then, you know, uh, Richard Ryan lived in that house until 1948. Yeah. So time period fits. The long face to me is something that makes me think that it might be the same person because that's a very specific thing to remember. Like maybe the face was like really long or, yeah, I mean, it's just in the heat of the moment. That's the thing that stuck out to all these people, tall and thin, 20s to 30s and a long face. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And we were talking about it a little bit. Like is maybe just cause like a long face isn't necessarily a super common descriptor in the United States. So maybe that's why it sticks out to us. But oh, again, maybe that's a good point. Yeah. But again, I mean, for this, you know, the same person, not everyone has a long face, right? Right. Like, so yeah. everyone who saw these attacks or whatever included that in their description, like you said, it's interesting. Yeah. It's and notable. Me, makes me wonder if it might be the same. Um, there is another case that is sometimes discussed in conjunction with Sheila's on Monday, April 12th, 1948. So about a month after the attack on Brenda. 11-year-old Quentin Smith and 9-year-old David Lee were walking home from their school in Farnworth. And Farnworth is a district in Bolton, which again is Sheila's hometown. In fact, these boys were walking near McDonald Avenue, which is the street that Sheila lived on when she disappeared. The boys had been warned by their parents that there had been a recent knife attack against a child in the area and that they should stay away from people they didn't know. While they walked home along the train tracks, they were playing around and setting small fires to the weeds on the railway embankment. They were approached by a man they did not know who claimed to work for the rail line and told them that they were in trouble. Even though their parents had warned them about strangers, the boys believed and complied with the man, probably because they technically weren't supposed to be setting fires near the railroad tracks. The man demanded that the boys follow him, and the three went away from the road towards another embankment. That was when the man suddenly attacked both of the boys. He stabbed them repeatedly and left them for dead. During the attack, David managed to stagger away, and the man continued the attack on Quentin. David was found by neighbors crawling on McDonald Avenue trying to get to his house. He told them about the attack, and the police were dispatched to the area. Quentin Smith was stabbed multiple times and died at the scene. His partially nude body was also been beaten in addition to being stabbed. But by the time the authorities found him, the attacker had fled. David Lee was stabbed nine times and survived. He received wounds to his chest and lower abdomen. While recovering in the hospital, he gave police a description of the man who attacked him and his friend, a white man, 20 to 30 years old, tall and thin, with a long face. He was shown multiple suspects in a lineup, but did not identify anyone as the man who attacked them. There was an extensive police effort to identify the assailant. News of the murder was widespread in the area, and anyone with any information was urged to come forward. An award of 500 pounds was immediately offered, and when no new leads came forward, the award was increased to 1,000 pounds. That would be an increase from 18,000 pounds to 36,000 pounds in today's money. 
Despite the widespread investigation, no leads were uncovered, and 69 years later, the case remains unsolved. So this happened four years after Sheila went missing. And again, we see a case where the perpetrator is a tall white guy in his 20s or 30s with a long face. Is it another coincidence? Is there a serial offender? You know, I don't know. I will say that there is a difference in victimology here because before Mm -hmm. this, the attacks were on younger girls who were alone. All the girls were six. Sheila, if you count her, right, in that. Yeah. And then Patricia and Brenda were all six years old. And this attack was on two boys who were older. So he's attacking more than one person. Mm -hmm. And they're also a little bit older and more likely, I think, to fight back. Yeah. So that is a little strange. I kind of was smelling a serial offender here, but, you know, maybe he's just somebody who preys on kids. But that is a good point that, you know, yeah, I mean, one guy's going after single girls. You're not going to fight back and they're young because, you know, they can't. And then, yeah, that's kind of weird at 11 and a 9. There is another case that involves three-year-old June Ann Devaney from Blackburn. Blackburn is in the same area as Bolton, and it's about 14 miles away from Farnworth, where Quentin Smith was killed. A little over a month later, on May 15, 1948, June Ann Devaney was at Queens Park Hospital recovering from a bout of pneumonia. Around midnight on the 15th, the nurse on duty heard crying coming from the recovery ward. She went to investigate and saw nothing wrong, But then a little over an hour later, she noticed that the ward was drafty, and she looked again and saw that at the far end of the ward, the door was open. She went in and closed the door and then realized that the cot that belonged to June was empty. A quick search of the floor was done, but no trace of June was found. The police were notified and arrived at the hospital within 20 minutes. A full search of the grounds was organized, and at 3 a.m., a body was located next to one of the boundary walls. The body had injuries consistent with being beaten. Back in the ward, there were two key pieces of evidence, a glass water bottle under her cot and a set of dirty footprints that were seen going from the door to June's cot and then back out. The water bottle had several sets of fingerprints on it, and all sets were ruled out as belonging to hospital staff with the exception of one. The investigation showed that the fingerprints belonged to a 22-year-old man named Peter Griffith. A cab driver testified that he had dropped Griffith off near the hospital that night He was arrested near his home on August 13, 1948, about three months after that murder. Griffiths immediately admitted that he was responsible for June's death, but he showed no remorse for his actions. He was charged with murder and decided to plead guilty. And at the time, the crime he was indicted on was a capital offense that carried the death penalty. The only way to spare Griffiths' life would be to have him declared insane and not responsible for his actions. During a competency interview with a psychiatrist for the defense, the defense psychiatrist said that he showed signs of suffering from early schizophrenia, and Griffiths told the doctor that he knew what he was doing, but he didn't realize the actions were wrong. Based on this response, the prosecution argued that Griffiths was aware of right from wrong, and according to the prosecution, Griffiths planned the attack and took precautions that would prevent him from being caught, and he also planned what he would do in the event that he was found by a hospital employee. The trial lasted two days and the jury deliberated for 23 minutes before returning a verdict, declaring him competent and guilty. Griffiths was sentenced to death. Peter Griffiths' sentence was carried out by hanging in Liverpool Prison in November of 1948. He was 22 years old. This case ties in with the murder of Quentin Smith because when Griffiths was apprehended, he fit the description of the man who attacked the boys at the railroad tracks. 
He matched the description so much that the police put him in a lineup for David to see if he would be able to identify him as the man who attacked them. Unfortunately, David was unable to say for certain if Griffith was the man who stabbed them on that May afternoon. So if Griffith fits the description of the man who attacked Quentin and David, that means that he potentially also fits the description of the guy who attacked Patricia and Brenda and then the man who was last seen with Sheila. So in a span of four years, we have multiple attacks, including murder, on children involving men who are described in a similar way. So even if that's a coincidence, I just think it's very interesting, to say the least. I'll put pictures of Griffiths on our website. I will say he's white and thin, and I guess he has, like, a longish face. He does have distinctive features. Mm -hmm. Um, Richard Ryan, the sex offender who was seen digging in the backyard the night Sheila disappeared, also fit that general description, but I will say that him matching that description is based on articles written at the time of the investigation because I tried but was unable to find a picture of Richard Ryan from the time of Sheila's disappearance. Yeah. But I did look. Yeah. Look really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I know this case was, you know, really hard to research. Um, just not a lot of information. Clearly, you can find a picture of Ryan. And everyone involved is, you know, dead, really. I mean, I wonder if the attacks ever stopped. Um, it seemed to me that there was, like, someone terrorizing the general area for four years attacking children. I was just... And again, it's hard to know because there's so little information, you know, given so old. But I wonder if, the, you know, after that man was, you know, arrested and subsequently put to death, I wonder if those stopped. Yeah, it was hard to find, to track down mm-hmm. just kind of like a timeline. I'm sure people in the area might now be more familiar, just, you know, stories from, yeah, you know, their parents or grandparents Urban or whoever lived there at the time knew, but... Yeah, this was pretty much all I found, and it seemed like kind of like a cluster of attacks. Yeah. This case, just like I said, I keep saying, it's just ended up being really interesting to look into. I, I looked into it at first as just Sheila's disappearance, mm-hmm. and then found all these other possibly related cases. So yeah. It ended up kind of unraveling and kind of growing as I looked into it. All the places where the attacks took place were really close together. They took place in a relatively short period of time. So in my opinion, they have a at least a chance yeah. of being related, I think. Maybe not all the cases, but I do think that Patricia and Brenda were probably attacked by the same person. And even though David couldn't say for sure that Griffiths attacked him, he could potentially be responsible for that attack, you know, as well as June's murder. Mm-hmm. As for Sheila, I do believe that she was kidnapped and probably murdered very shortly after she went missing, and her body was concealed well enough that no trace of her was ever found. I don't believe that she got lost because I think that some trace of her would have been found given the widespread search that ensued. Yeah. And it was a busy area. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It doesn't seem like a place where somebody could just wander away and never be seen again. Yeah. I'm not sure if I believe that Richard Ryan is responsible, but he was a pedophile who lived 300 feet away from her, so it's possible. You know, they did the excavation of the house but didn't find anything, but he could have moved her or any number of things could have happened. Obviously, I don't have any concrete proof, but I wonder if the person who took Sheila also attacked Patricia and Brenda. I'm leaning towards yes because of the... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.